Welcome to the VetoCast, a podcast of six episodes that explores the effects of the veto power of the United Nations Security Council. VetoCast is part of the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign that is committed to changing the way the Security Council veto is used. The veto is a fundamental function of the Security Council. A veto will stop a resolution from being passed. Reasons for a veto can range from total disagreement on an issue to language concerns in a resolution. But there is something else to consider when discussing the work of the Security Council, and that is the so-called hidden veto. The hidden veto is an implied use of the veto, This can be an expressed threat from a P5 country to cast a veto on a resolution. Or a more common form can be an implication to cast a veto during a closed session of the Security Council. In other words, the expected use of a veto may act as a hidden veto. Another example could be when a topic is controversial to a P5 country, or if it's an issue that has been vetoed on in the past, it will shape the expectations and implications of how that topic will be handled by the P5 countries. Debate is muted during hidden veto situations, stifling necessary UN actions and interventions. Effectively, the outcome is the same as if the explicit veto had actually been cast. Ryan D'Souza is the advocacy officer for the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. It's kind of tragic, but in the most complex or pressing issues such as Syria, Iraq or South Sudan, um, where a lot of the council members have some vested interests, the permanent members will often circulate a text um, essentially amongst themselves. And once they have a collective agreement, they will then basically force the other elected members to agree on the text. So it's during these private conversations that a P5 member can reject even an initial discussion around a text and threaten to use their veto. This will then block any further action and usually end the process from going any further. Um, So, I mean, that's essentially why uh, the Council never talks about situations like Tibet or Chechnya. Hans Karel, Swedish lawyer and diplomat, former Under Secretary General for Legal Affairs and the Legal Council of the United Nations. The most troublesome situation I experienced during my tenure in the UN between 1994 and 2004 was the situation in Kosovo where there was a draft resolution uh, and there were indications that that resolution would not be adopted because China and Russia would vote against it. In my view, that draft should have been put on the table and they should have taken a vote because then it is on record for history that those two states, they refused to endorse the use of force in a situation where where people were fleeing across the borders and where people were really threatened. So that's where uh, there was an intervention by NATO in the region. I spoke about that in an address that I gave in Canada in October 1999, the same year. And I said that the Council should be careful not to expose itself to criticism when the whole world sees that actually something should be done and it is vetoed then the Council risks losing authority. And that's very dangerous, because if the Council loses authority, 
the United Nations as an organization loses authority. The use of the veto has changed since the end of the Cold War. During the Cold War, an average of more than four vetoes per year were cast, totaling 199 altogether. From 1990 to 2014, there has been 29 vetoes, averaging just over one per year. So while it may seem that the use of the veto has diminished, this would lead us to false conclusions. We need to take into consideration the hidden veto. The hidden veto is most commonly used during closed sessions where record-keeping isn't divulged, so it's impossible to know for certain how often the hidden veto has been used. But we do know a few. One of the most well-known failures to act by the Security Council, and one of the darkest parts of the UN history, is the Rwandan genocide. Ryan D'Souza. In Rwanda, we saw how the failure of the Security Council to act contributed to the genocide there. And the US and the French have some responsibility in this respect, as they are the ones who threatened to use their veto to block any resolution which even mentioned the word genocide. On the 7th of April, 1994, one of the largest mass slaughters in human history began. It lasted for approximately 100 days, and it's still uncertain how many people were killed. One common official figure estimates 800,000 people. Many more on top of this number were mutilated, raped and severely injured. The situation leading up to the genocide has to do with Rwanda's colonial past. Rwanda was assigned to Germany during the 1884 Berlin Conference, when the European imperial powers divided Africa between themselves. After World War I, Germany lost control of the colony and it was transferred to Belgian power. Both Germany and Belgium strengthened already existing power structures and delegated power to the elite. They also divided the people into different ethnic groups. The notion of different groups existed before, but these divisions were reinforced during colonial rule. The colonial powers favoured the Tutsis, whom they saw as elite over the Hutu and Tuwa. A revolution led by the Hutus took place in 1948 against the Tutsi elite. Many Tutsi were killed. With the Hutu population now in control, the racial divides became absolutely rigid. Riots would break out regularly over the following decades and usually ended up with Tutsi deaths. The racial divide became ingrained in society. Even Tutsi children, penalized in schools, were regarded as dull and slow-witted. A civil war broke out in 1992 between the Hutu government and a rebel group called the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF. The RPF consisted mainly of Tutsi refugees who had escaped persecution by fleeing to Uganda. The RPF's goal was to take control of Rwanda and stop the persecution of the Tutsi. A peace treaty was negotiated between the two parties in 1993. Under the watch of the United States, France and the Organization of African Unity, it took place in the town of Arusha. This peace treaty therefore became known as the Arusha Accords. The Arusha Accords divided the power between the RPF and the Rwandan government, which meant stripping power from the president Yuvenal Habyarimana. This outcome was disliked by Habyarimana and Hutu nationalists. To make sure the Arusha Accords were implemented successfully, the Security Council commissioned Resolution 872. This established a peacekeeping force called the United Nations Assistance Mission for Rwanda, or UNAMIR. 
When deciding under which rights the UNAMIR should act, the Security Council based them on Chapter 6 of the UN Charter. This meant that UNAMIR would act as an observing party only and would not take direct military action unless they themselves were attacked. UNAMIR's rules of engagement were therefore severely restricted, and this would later prove to have dire consequences. The final deployment of force consisted of about 2,500 soldiers, a large proportion of which came from Belgium. It is against UN protocol, however, to send troops from countries that have a colonial relationship history. Les paras du premier bataillon de Dist sont officiellement reçus dans la capitale rwandaise par le général Dallaire, le commandant en chef de la mission de l'ONU au Rwanda. Ils seront 450 Belges servant sous la bannière onusienne pour une mission de maintien de la paix dans le cadre des accords There was a section within the Rwandan government that consisted of Hutu hardliners who promoted ousting or killing Tutsi people. These hardliners started planning a genocide long before one occurred. Journalists and historians disagree on when this planning actually started, but we do know that Rwanda imported large quantities of arms and machetes. These were distributed to Hutu civilians. The stated reason was a civil defense initiative against the RPF threat. These weapons, however, were later used to carry out the massacres. The final trigger for the genocide was the death of Yuvenal Habyarimana. A plane carrying Habyarimana was shot down in Kigali Airport on the 6th of April. The following day, the killings began. Government forces, including police and military, targeted key Tutsi leaders and moderate or sympathetic Hutu leaders. The tragedy unfolding in the Central African nation of Rwanda keeps getting worse. UN Secretary General Boutrous Ghali said today there is strong evidence that both sides in the vicious civil war are preparing new massacres of civilians. And he called for the use of force, large numbers of UN troops, to stop the slaughter. Terrified Rwandans are fleeing in every direction, to Zaire in the west, Uganda in the north, and Tanzania in the east. The government forces set up checkpoints throughout Kigali. Using the colonial passport system, they killed people they discovered to be Tutsi. These armed forces also started to recruit and pressure Hutu civilians to kill, maim and rape Tutsi people. This led to a mass killing of Tutsi and moderate Hutus at the hands of the Hutu population. One of the first targeted killings by Hutu forces was Prime Minister Yuwilingirimana. Yuwilingirimana had a personal guard of 10 Belgian Unamir soldiers, as well as a presidential guard of government troops. On the 7th of April, the Presidential Guard surrounded the 10 Belgian Unamir soldiers and demanded that they surrender their weapons. After two hours of crossfire, the Unamir soldiers surrendered. They were held captive, tortured and then executed. Yuilingi Amana fled with her family to a nearby UN volunteer compound, but were later followed by the government troops. She and her husband were executed once they surrendered. It's a scene that typifies the Western response to the Rwandan crisis, at least in its early stages. A few people with few resources, overwhelmed by millions. UN officials say they have never seen anything like it. In just the last 24 hours, more than a quarter of a million people have fled Rwanda and its terror. Lines at some border crossings stretch for five miles. With the people have come more horrible stories about what is happening in the homeland they are fleeing. 
Official estimates of the dead in Rwanda in just the last three weeks range from 100,000 to half a million. Most casualties are being inflicted by government troops and their allied militias as they systematically slaughter civilians in an apparent attempt to exterminate Rwanda's 700,000 minority population from the Tutsi tribe. Belgium withdrew the Belgian troops from Unamir in response to the death of their soldiers. Belgium began to argue for total Unamir withdrawal since the two parties in the conflict were no longer following terms of the Eurasia Accords. The United States and United Kingdom were also hesitant about further deployment and pressured for a complete withdrawal within the Security Council. An official withdrawal of Unamir didn't occur, but the majority of the troops were withdrawn. The force commander of the Unamir was the Canadian Major General, Romeo Dallaire, who now stood alone with a small contingent of soldiers. Making the best of the situation, the troops were deployed where Tutsis were known to be hiding. They defended the areas by relying on their UN credentials. These actions may have saved as many as 32,000 people. Dallaire requested reinforcements multiple times, and he stated that a deployment consisting of the original number of 2,500 soldiers would end the massacres. This was denied. One of the most shocking parts of the UN involvement in Rwanda has to do with French relations to the Hutu government. France is a permanent member of the Security Council, and it has a long-standing communication with the Hutu government as part of Francophone politics, a colonial inheritance of French influence in African countries. During the first days of the genocide, France sent 190 paratroopers to secure Kigali Airport in order to ensure the French citizens could be evacuated. They worked together with Belgian troops in Unamir. Their purpose was for French citizens and their safety. This meant that in certain cases, Tutsi spouses and Tutsi parents were left behind. Tutsi refugees that tried to escape in French and Belgian evacuation trucks were also forced off at waypoints. This meant execution. The RPF restarted an offensive when the killings began, since the terms of the Arusha Accords had been broken. They took control of Kigali on the 4th of July. 100 days of race-driven slaughter, rape and mutilation ended when RPF had control over the majority of Rwanda on the 18th of July. Dr. Frank Habineza, I am the president of the Democratic Party of Rwanda and also the president of the African Greens Federation. The UN, uh, uh, if they took uh, clear responsibility and if they... Uh, intervened properly, and if they did not pull out their troops, uh, of course the genocide would not have happened. It would have prevented, and very few people uh, would have been killed. Many people would have been saved. Well, we see that uh, the key players in the UN at the time were the United States of America. President Bill Clinton came to Rwanda and apologized for what happened, and uh, the Prime Minister of Belgium also came and apologized, and. Um, uh, so that 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 was one of the responsibilities, and uh, but uh, um, of course uh, the UN has, is doing some other parts, like uh, supporting like the UNDP, United Nations Development Program. They are supporting different uh, programs in Rwanda uh, with their partners, the World Bank and others. They are all doing this and that to support Rwanda, uh, but still uh, we see that the UN. Uh, still doing, the, not getting as serious as they they are supposed to be because 
right now we still have problems in Congo, uh, whereby the former uh, soldiers, or those most people who are responsible for the genocide, uh, are. the UN has been taking a lot of uh, uh, commitments, uh, they're making declarations, they're making uh, resolutions, but they don't respect them. And even when they talk about uh, violence which has been in Congo, uh, they make reports, they make resolutions, they, but nothing still, it stops there. Even recently they say they are going to solve this problem in Congo of the FDLR, whatever, nothing happens still. Uh, so you find that they did a mapping report of what they say, the atrocities that happened in Congo. Still they don't follow up on whatever they do. So basically you find that uh, UN, uh, they, they need to, to improve, they need to do better than what they are doing because uh, we are tired of having resolutions having declarations and uh, but when when we really need them we don't see them we don't say that we can hold them accountable to, because the Rwandan is accountable to what they what happened Rwandan is themselves they killed each other so they are accountable to the genocide the Rwandan people yeah the UN did not intervene it would have stopped yes it's also accountable in the way that they should have stopped because there were a lot of warnings that uh, the general who was in charge of the UN peacekeeping mission in Rwanda Yunamir General uh, Dalel Romeo Dalel from Canada sent a lot of warnings to uh, the UN that there is going to be a massacre we have also seen that even the United States of America uh, the people of the African department uh, they were all they all knew what was happening they got reports from the embassy in Kigali uh, but the people here, Susan Rice and others, did not do enough, did not act, did not uh, inform properly the president. Actually, they were more uh, pushing to put away all the soldiers on the ground. So, yes, they, they are also responsible in that way, but, but criminally, is the Rwandans are responsible for what they did. The Rwandan people say that the UN betrayed them. People believe that the UN should have been a place of escape, a place of refugee, but instead... The UN did not do their job, so we take that the UN betrayed us. People of Rwanda do not have trust in the UN because the UN abandoned Rwanda at a time of need, especially in the genocide. Even now, when it would have done better, still we see that the resolutions they take in the Security Council, they they are not being respected, they are not being implemented. We don't see... uh, much happening, so we we only hear resolutions, resolutions, but we don't see. Uh, see uh, we see actually some of the UN missions, even the court, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which is based in Arusha, Tanzania. It has taken almost now, to, uh, to almost uh, 15 years, I think, uh, trying those cases since I think in '95. Um, but how many cases have they tried? Very few. I think they're not more than 30. And how much money they have used? Billions of dollars. And uh, so you find that they have raised a lot of resources, and uh, the, uh, the, the, and the result is very small according to the resources. And that court would have done a lot, and uh, because most of the wanted people on the list of the international list of those wanted for committing the genocide, they are still out there. And the court is now finishing. Actually, it has been cro- is closing down now. They have handled their last case, uh, the ICTR in Arusha. They have handled their last cases, but. The, they have not done all the job. They've done not even half of the job. <laughs> so basically, and that court would have helped you also in the reconciliation process, also in bringing out the truth of really what happened. Uh, so basically, uh, we, we are not really happy with what the UN uh, uh, is doing or what it has done. We hope they can do better. We hope they can improve and give 
hope to people. The Rwandan genocide stands as a stark reminder of the dire consequences when the Security Council fails to act. Internal pressures within the UN, leading to a hidden veto, rendered this shameful part of human history possible. These are some of the darkest days in the UN's history. It should be remembered as guidance for what cannot be repeated in future work of the Security Council. To function, the Security Council must be based on the UN Charter and not guided by special interests or diplomacy. The UN must be more accountable of the hidden veto. You have listened to The VetoCast, a podcast of six episodes that explores the effects of the veto power of the United Nations Security Council. VetoCast is part of the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign, which is committed to changing the way the Security Council's veto is used. VetoCast is a co-production by the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes organization and Uppsala Student Radio 98.9. Project manager for VetoCast was Joanna Hellstrom. Production and audio editing by Simon Sander. Scripts by Alexander Friedman. Interviews by Joanna Hellstrom and Philip Alborn. This production was narrated by Leila Mendy. Our thanks to Daniel Schellen and Hannah Wernerschun and the rest of the team behind the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign. It is our world and the global challenges are of everyone's concern. For peace and prosperity, we need an efficient UN. For more information, visit our webpage at www.stopillegitimatevetoes.org and our Facebook page. Let's stop illegitimate vetoes. Illegitimate vetoes.